You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 48 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here today with Alison Tate. How are you, Al, this week? I'm very, very well. Thank you, Valerie. I've, I've got new headphones and a new speaker, so I hope <laughs> I'm sounding like 4,000% better than I have before. And I feel a little bit like I'm talking underwater because they're very impressive headphones. Okay. I should take a photo, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, do, do. Let us see what you look like. No, I don't think so. And what about you, Valerie? What have you been up to? Oh, what have I been up to? I've been in a little bit of a bubble because I've had a major writing project that I need to focus on. So because it's so huge and it was a little bit overwhelming, I pretty much attempted to anyway say to people, look, I'm offline this week, I'm, you know, in a bubble uh, so I could focus on my work. And it was semi successful in that um, I I did, you know, manage to get a huge chunk done. However, I don't think I cut myself off enough. So there were days oh. where, you know, for a lot of the day I was still in contact with the office. But I think that that kind of works for me because I find that I don't write very well in the first half of the day, like, you know, in the morning or before lunch. I just – I sit in front of the computer and it doesn't really work. My pr- most productive hours – I know this sounds strange, but I'm my most productive hours seem to be between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. And oh. that's when it just – pours out like a hose. (laughs) There's an attractive concept. Yes. That's a beautiful image that I'm going to just stay with for some time now, Val. So, uh, yes, I guess it kind of worked. Well, uh, uh, ultimately the end result was that it worked, so I'm happy with that. Well, you know, it's all about the end, isn't it? Justifying the means and all that stuff. Yes, but when are your most productive hours? (sighs) They used to be late. They used to be, well, they used to have to be late because the um, I used to write, I used to have to write at night after everyone had gone to bed because oh, I didn't yeah. have any other time to do it when the boys were small. And um, don't you wake them up with their typing? No, because I don't type as loudly as you do, Valerie. <laughs> and as all mothers know, you learn how to do all manner of things very, very quietly when you have children. Okay. <laughs> Just leave that right there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, no... <laughs> Very, very late. But um, I find now that I try to get much more done earlier because I'm so I'm tired, you know, and I yeah. have to get up early with the boys and I have a dog to walk and I have all those things to do. So I, um, I probably, my most productive hours now are probably between about 10 and 2 really. Oh. And then I do, I do sit down again at night, um, often after sort of 8.30, 9 o'clock, but I have to be done by 11.30-ish now. I used right. to be able to go much later, but I can't do it anymore. I'm just getting old, Val. Let's face it. <laughs> I'm getting on. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> but someone who has had a very, very exciting and productive week, and I'm pretty sure that she works pretty much 24 hours a day from what I can gather, yeah. is um, Kate Forsyth, our friend. Ah, uh, yes. Um, writer, centre, presenter, um, and also award-winning novelist, um, Kate Forsyth, whose novel, Bitter Greens, which is a retelling of Rapunzel, and which I've read and which is quite fabulous, um, was recently awarded the American Library Association Prize for Best Historical Fiction of 2015, Woo-hoo, which is extraordinary. Like, yes. It's the most amazing achievement and, and it's, um, it's brilliant. And um, we, of course, have interviewed Kate on our podcast, episode mm. 21. So if anybody would like to have a little bit of a listen to her talking about her process and building worlds, she's at world building it's extraordinary yeah. Yeah. um should have a listen to episode 21 
Yeah, and if anyone wants to learn from Kate, there's a couple of different options. If you're in Sydney, she does a course called History, Mystery and Magic at the Australian Writers' Centre. But also, if you would like Kate to take you on a magical journey to Oxford, Stratford-upon-Avon, Stonehenge and the Cotswolds, then uh, we also organise a literary tour where Kate is your host and you have writing classes with Kate in the morning and then you go and explore places uh you know like the harry like lots of places that harry potter were filmed and um lots of magical and mysterious places so if you're interested in that check out magic in oxford.com lots of pubs too from what i can gather yes, there the... are quite a few <laughs> pub visits as well because from you go photos to, i've seen yes. you go lots to you go to pubs that you know c.s lewis and tolkien you know used to frequent so it's it's a pretty cool tour I'd love to do that. We had people from all over the world last year. So what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week? Let's see. Uh, well, the world is a flutter with uh, the announcement that Harper Lee is going to be releasing the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird after oh more than half a century. So pretty exciting. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well... It is quite interesting because, you know, on the surface of things, everyone goes, wee, a new novel by Harper Lee. Um, It's a little bit controversial. There's been a lot of uh, backstory about the fact that uh, she, there's there's some question as to whether or not she's actually um, signed off on it because she wants to or because um, she's quite elderly now. She's in her 80s. Um, and her sister, who was the person who kind of looked after all her interests and things for all this time, she died a few months ago and so her uh, all the legal stuff has gone to someone else. And there's a lot of question as to whether or not it's the someone else who's actually decided that this should happen or whether it's Harper Lee. Mm. Um, and the other thing is also that it, it technically isn't a sequel. It is a, um, it's a novel that she, it's the first novel she wrote. Um, and it's... It's a prequel. Uh, it's, well, it sort of is, but it, it's written from the perspective of Scout as an older woman looking back on her time, um, which is it's called Go Set a Watchman, by the way. Mm. Um, and it's, it's sort of set around the same time as To Kill a Mockingbird, but it's told from the perspective of the adult Scout. Uh, Scout. Mm. And the story goes that she wrote this novel first, she sent it to the publisher and the publisher said to her, I really like the flashbacks. You should just write the entire novel from the perspective of the child, which is what mm. she did, and that became To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. So there's a lot of question about what we're actually going to be seeing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it'll sell a million, thousand, zillion because everyone will be interested. But, um, it, yeah, it is controversial. It doesn't come without some kind of caveat, you know. Well, I hope it is released before her death and hopefully she actually has some things to say about it when Mm. it is released because, um, you know, I guess this sort of thing has happened before and you may, obviously people who have read Picnic at Hanging Rock will remember that the final chapter, which kind of revealed it all, uh, was was (laughs) released, sorry, or not, (laughs) uh, was released many, many years later, like, 20 years later and after three years after the author's death, obviously mm-hmm. Joan Lindsay. So um, it's, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, what comes about with all of this. Yes. And I think it's, I think it's one of those things too that I think a lot of authors have dodgy old manuscripts lying around that, yeah. you know, probably should never see the light of day. I mean, I know that there's a lot of stuff I've written. I think I'm going to have to delete my hard drive yeah. before I die because, of course, I'm going to be so rich and famous that they're going to want to release every single thing I've ever written. Yeah. That's how it works, right? Yeah. Um, so, but I think, you know, maybe there's a lesson in that if you if you don't want it to see the light of day, get rid of it. Yeah, it's not <laughs> meant to be there. Like, um, you know, because the final chapter of Picnic and Hanging Rock was actually written as the final chapter and it was removed. Yeah. Yeah. before publication because obviously they thought that the book was be, would be more powerful that way. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> another interesting link that I wanted to bring up this week is Molly Ring- Ringwald and Stoyer bring back the lost art of letter writing. So basically Molly Ringwald still has every letter she and her husband wrote to each other 
like from 15 years ago. And she is joining the likes of Stoya and uh, Maria Popova to do Women of Letters, which is a female literary salon, you know, to showcase the work of women and obviously to talk about letter writing. But what's interesting, and this is going to be in New York, uh, but what's interesting is that this um, idea, Women of Letters, was founded by two Australians in Melbourne in Mm. 2010, Mm. Marika Hardy um, and uh, Michaela McGuire. So it's now found its way to New York where, you know, Molly Ringbold, uh, 16 Candles is going to be doing it. (laughs) Well, that's very exciting. I think it's great that they – I think it's a lovely concept – I find it interesting, like, do you write letters anymore, Valerie? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I write cards, mm. but um, I don't really write letters on bits of letter paper. <laughs> I write an incredible amount of emails. Do you mm. write letters? No. I write a blog and I write Facebook updates. Yeah. It's very different, isn't it? It I is extremely different. I and I don't, um, I don't think my husband has ever written me a letter in my whole entire life, and I don't think I've written one to him. No, <laughs> maybe I'll write him a love letter for Valentine's Day. Aww. Or maybe I'll just give him a book, seeing as International Book Giving Day is the same day, and I oh, actually yes. prefer that. Yeah. Of course. Hmm. Um, okay, so we also have a really interesting link for something quite different, and it's um, from a website called Content Standard, which, you know, focuses on uh, content marketing and the fact that the world is full of content these days. Mm. And this post is called How Top Journalists Are Pivoting Their Careers in Writing into Brand Journalism. Now, it's this particular post is quite US-centric and it lists a number of different, uh, you know, US journalists. But basically, they're talking about how they're leaving these pretty plum and prestigious roles in publishing in newspapers and magazines generally and they are moving towards um, working for corporations as brand journalists. Now this trend has certainly already reached, well and truly reached Australia. There's there's many instances of this and there's instances for example of Andrew Cornell who's a fantastic writer, who has been a fantastic writer and columnist at the Financial Review for many, many years. Um, I read, I love reading his stuff and he went to become the managing editor of Blue Notes, which is the run by ANZ. And All it's right. like an ANZ, you know, website that's meant to, that's brand journalism, essentially. And he isn't the only one. There's quite a number of um, senior Australian Financial Review people who have gone there. And, um, and, yeah, there's lots of other examples of that kind as well, where people are taking top-notch journalists uh, – well, not people, where corporations are taking top-notch j- journalists and luring them away from their uh, career in, in publishing and to do a different kind of publishing. So mm. uh, it'll be interesting to see how this trend pans out. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's um, I think it's obviously interesting. I think it's a look. I think people who are doing that are in many, many ways um, very smart, being able to take themselves over to digital. Because the fact of the matter is that you know, straight journalism, as we've always known it, the newsroom with the ink stains and all that sort of stuff, um, is is dying. Like it's not what it was anymore, and the jobs the opportunities in that area are so much fewer than they ever have been before. So um, I know a lot of journalists, I've met a lot of journalists over the last couple of years who are just absolutely flummoxed by what they need to do next and how to um, how to move on and they can see that the industry is changing around them and they're not entirely sure how to go about, you know, making the change mm. with it. So obviously these guys have seen the writing on the wall and have made a conscious decision to to make the change on their terms. And the kind of sites they're doing, like Blue Notes, like if you had a look at it, um, it, it's, it looks like any sort of finance site. You can't, I mean, unless, you know, it's got an ANZ brand on it. But other than that, the stories are mostly general interest stories about different aspects of finance, you know. Mm. I, and that seems, that's the way that brand journalism is mostly going. So, um I don't know. Like it's a it's a it's a very difficult area. It's a very hairy area because you you've got to start looking at the ethics of these kinds of things. And I know that, that a lot of journalists do that. Um, you've got to make a conscious decision that if you go to that sort of work, you're probably not going back. Right. 
Oh, yeah, I think you can go back because I think that one of the things that, um, just like you can work for Coca-Cola and then you can work for Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, 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 and, and you can potentially go back to, to work for Coca-Cola unless you have some kind of anti-competitive agreement. But yeah. I think it's important to point out it's not actually, I don't actually believe it's a divide between print and digital. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Andrew came from a print background and he's gone to this digital platform. But for example, Bernard Lisa, who is an award-winning journalist and he's, you know, interviewed every one from the Dalai Lama to, you know, oh gosh, every celebrity in the world. And he has um, been uh, featured regularly in, in Good Weekend for many, many years and is actually conducting one of our profile writing classes at the Australian Writers' Centre. He's an extremely respected journalist, but he took a chunk of last year off to write a corporate history. Yes. And, which is brand journalism in itself. Yes. Yes. And it's a corporate history in a print book. It's not online. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly not at the moment. And he said it was a absolutely – He even though he had, you know, questions about whether he should do it, he said that after he did it, it he felt it made him a better writer. Okay. And he's now, Why is you that? know, back – He's just because it's a different type of writing. Yes. And um, it's a real – he got to spend so much time – immersed in one particular company's, you know, history and method of operation and all that kind of stuff. And to be able to tell that kind of story in that way is yeah. is great for your writing muscle. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, I think, you know, I think we all know that we live in interesting times when it mm. comes to this kind of thing. And I just find it really interesting to, to see which way it plays out, which way people go and what happens. You know, you can only you kind of got to be fairly nimble at the moment to to make a living in this sort of area and I think it's good to, to follow the examples of what um, other people are doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you have some interesting, an interesting thing about grants. I do. I um, just, well, as we're saying, interesting times. Um, the Australia Council for the Arts uh, offers a range of grants every year and the, the model has changed slightly this year, the, um, the way that they're offering their grants. But the reason I draw it to people's attention is because the closing date, um, they offer four uh, rounds of grants each year um, and the closing date for the um, arts projects for individuals and groups, which is writing projects, you are the artist, you are the writer, mm-hmm. um, is the third of March 2015. So mm. if you're working on a big project or you've got an idea for a big project, then it's worth having a look at the website, um, having a look at the guidelines and seeing if you can apply because at the end of the day, why not? Why not you? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. So the first round of grants finishes on the 3rd of March. Great. 2015. 2015. Fantastic. You've got to be in it to win it. I mean, I must admit, I have never received a grant. I wish somebody would give me a grant. Well, have you ever applied for a grant, <laughs> that's, Valerie? That's the point. Yes. See, there you go. Exactly. And actually, the, the application process for grants can be extremely arduous. So, it's, you know, if you are thinking about applying, have a look at it now. Mm. You know, there's a lot of information required and putting together the grant is an art in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and in saying that, Charlotte Wood, um, the novelist, had some fantastic tips for applying for grants and I will put the link to the show notes in that because it's worth having a look at what she has to say. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I came across this interesting link about um, writing spaces where nine famous creatives do their work. And basically, it's a photo of, you know, where Mark Twain did his writing, where Nigella Lawson does her writing, where Virginia Woolf did her writing. And, you know, you can have a look at the link. We'll put the link in the show notes. However, I'm more interested in Al, where do you do your writing and describe to us what it actually looks like? Are you neat? Do you have a clear desk? Are you surrounded by a billion books? What does it actually look like? Are there post-it notes everywhere? Do tell No, I, I do love a post-it note. Um, well, I've actually got a funny story regarding this because I, I'm taking part in um, – There's an, the Emerging Writers Festival has a digital writers festival, which starts yes. next week. And they asked me to take part in a, uh, a series that they're doing, which is uh, where writers share a day in their lives. Mm. And one of the things – so I had to basically put together, I think, 10 photos of my day, which was hilarious enough in itself mm. – um, But one of the things that I needed to do for that, clearly, because I spent, you know, the better part of my day at my desk, (laughs) was to take a photo of my desk. 
And I cannot tell you how difficult it was. Why? Because, well, it's, interiors photography is not my thing, right? <laughs> and it's very, very hard. And I sit in a corner of my room and I have um, sort of artworks all around my walls. When I say artworks, I mean artworks by my children. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a set of French doors which are to the left. So the light all comes into the left of me. But when you're actually taking a photograph, that just creates a massive glare coming um, in from one side. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't decide whether or not I should photograph it with my screen on or my screen off. And mm-hmm. so I tried that a few different times. And, that, and I have a massive screen. Like I work on a Mac desktop because yes. I love the big screen, yes. love being able to put two documents up. It's really important oh, to me. Yes. Um, so, of course, to, to, be, to be honest with you, and I'm sure that most people would do the same thing, I did tidy my desk for the photograph. <laughs> so it actually doesn't look too bad. But as I sit here today, I have a massive pile of papers on one side of a project that I'm working on. I have my in trays overflowing because I haven't paid all my bills yet. Um, That's on the list for today. I have a set of standing files which I shove things in all the time. So currently it's looking a little bit less than its best. Okay. But it's a nice place to it's a nice space to work. I love to have the French doors open because yes. then you know I get the breeze through. But what about you? Valerie? But do you have you like are? books everywhere or you, books are of, all behind know? me? I oh. have I have two massive big sets of bookshelves which all sit behind me on either side of a fireplace. I have a fireplace in my office um, with a mantle. I've got some artworks. Yeah, I get some. It's a beautiful room. Like I, mm. I'm very, very lucky because I live in a very old house. My house was built in the 1870s oh. and so I have like 13-foot ceilings and mm. I have French doors and I have, you know, and I look out onto my veranda and out over my rose garden. Like, you know, I'm living the dream. Yes. But photographing the dream is not so easy. <laughs> not so easy. Okay. What about you? What do you? Where do you work? Oh, where I work is a little bit of a disaster at the moment um, because and I'm referring to my home office because I usually am in my home office. However, about ooh, eight weeks ago, the aircon uh, stopped working and um, oh, it, that's just – I need aircon, especially on those hot days. I cannot function. And so we bought a temporary sort of portable aircon which we put into the lounge room and so I basically moved myself lock, stock and barrel into the lounge room. Not only did I move my desk, my computers, my screen, my everything, I've been sleeping in the lounge room on the really hot days. So I've kind of, even though I've got this nice big um, place to live in, I've kind of been living in a studio apartment (laughs) for the last (laughs) eight weeks. Because I have to be near the aircon. So even though the aircon man has come and gone and it's been fixed and then broke again and all that, he's coming again today. So I'm desperate for the aircon to actually start working again so that I can actually move my desk back into the home office. Because at the moment, it's literally just set up in the lounge in front of the TV. I've got so many screens. There are bazillion screens in the lounge because my partner has also decided to set up in the lounge for the exact same reason. And it's just a mess. Like if anybody – Vogue Living is not coming by here anytime soon. Oh, Vogue Living's not allowed in the door here. (laughs) How would you like to – I'm just looking at the link you sent Mm -hmm. that that you had though. How's E.B. White? Look at that space. He's got nothing in there but a typewriter and a barrel for a bin and a hard wooden seat and a hard wooden desk. I mean – I can't even imagine. I, I'm way too messy to be that. Yeah, there's nothing to do. I look a lot right. more like Nigella Lawson or I think maybe Tina – actually, probably Tina Fey. Yeah, mm. that's me right there. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, mine looks like none of them. <laughs> mine looks like um, a hobo came and, like, set up in my lounge room. But anyway, when the aircon gets fixed and I move back into my lovely home office, it is very nice and I have it all set up and everything's very white and um, and lovely, but I've forgotten what that looks like. It's been so long ago. Anyway. Oh, poor love. You'll get there. Let's move on to our next thing. What have you got? Oh, I found this great website and it's just, it's worth it for the fun. Um, It's called whatshouldireadnext.com and you put in a book you like and the site will analyse its, you know, database of actual readers, favourite books and it will suggest recommendations for you of what to read next. Right, by that same author or? No, no, by by a different one. So let's say I put in To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee because we were talking about that. 
and it comes up with, it suggests that we read A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansbury. It suggests we read The Crucible by Arthur Miller, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Uh, it's got a whole range of uh, Cry the Beloved Country, um, Great Expectations. So it's putting us definitely into classic. Oh, here you go, Charlotte's Web. Be oh. white, see. Whereas, whereas if you put in Harry Potter, it suggests Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's <laughs> Stone, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Harry Potter and the Order that of the Phoenix. Makes sense. <laughs> the first one you got to read all seven, right? That makes perfect sense, Valerie. <laughs> oh, and that's a cute sight. Great. Yeah, very cute. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. So. Uh, we have spoken about this author before. Her name is Candace Fox and she won the Ned Kelly in 2014 and uh, for her book Hades and her second book, um, Eden, is out uh, now and her third book will be released later this year. So um, Candace is a little bit of a character. I think that I won't say any more. I think that um, you, well, let's just watch Candace or listen to Candace as her story unfolds. I think I would should point out though that um, we're clearly having a crime month this yeah. month with our authors uh, because I kind of got into reading a bit of crime fiction and I thought I have to I have to talk to these authors to see what their how their minds you know work and how they can come up with all of these grisly stories. So um, we will get off our crime month eventually, <laughs> but um, I hope you enjoy Candace Fox. Candace Fox comes from a large, eccentric family from Sydney's western suburbs, composed of half an adopted and pseudo-siblings. The daughter of a parole officer and an enthusiastic foster carer, Candace spent her childhood listening around corners to tales of violence, madness and evil as her father relayed his work stories to her mother and older brothers. When she entered the workforce, she first failed to conform to military life in a brief stint as an officer in the Royal Australian Navy at aged 18. At 20, she turned her hand to academia and taught high school through two undergraduate and two postgraduate degrees. Candace is passionate about the crime genre. Her first novel, Hades, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut in 2014. Eden, its sequel, has just been released. So thanks for joining us today, Candice. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Now, tell us about your new book, Eden. Okay, so uh, Eden is uh, the continuation of um, the Bennett Archer series, uh, which I started with my novel, Hades. Uh, it sort of picks up where um, Hades left off, um, and I don't want to ruin that for people. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose uh, it's just um, looking at the partnership between Frank and Eden and how strained that is because she's a, um, a serial killer and obviously his job is to catch serial killers, so emotionally he's trying to deal with <laughs> with all of that. Um, Eden is going undercover to find um, three missing girls uh, in the outback of Australia, um, and Frank is helping her father, um, underworld figure Hades Archer, to find who is stalking him from his past. Wow. Now, this, as you say, this is a, the sequel to Hades. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with the idea for this series? Because it's pretty out there. It is. <laughs> you know, like this detective serial killer in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with this unbelievable, you know, fantastic, fantastical life. How did you come, idea, uh, come up with the idea? Um, I, uh, I suppose it came from a range of places. Um, I mean, I've always wanted to write something dark and grisly and something that sort of t uh, used my background um, in crime and my interest in crime, you know, to write something really, really dark. Um, my mother used to foster children um, when I was very young. I mean, I'm one of six and she used to foster, you know, four and five at a time. And yeah. so from a very young age, I had police hanging around in my kitchen at home. <laughs> you know, I, w I would wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be, you know, three cops in the kitchen all having coffee with my mum and, you know, some family of kids, you know, in the corner terrified, um, you know, and it sort of just, you know, got the idea for me from a young age that 
you that the world is full of scary people um that children aren't always safe that children themselves are sometimes uh quite scary people mm. and i suppose that um comes from you know some of them being violent some of them being quite traumatized things like this uh and then i've got my father who was the parole officer at a sydney prison and he would come home and tell my mother horrific stories um, of things that would go on in the prison and things that people who were in the prison had done. Uh, and so as a little kid, I'm just growing up in this environment where I learn that crime and murder and mayhem are just a part of the world. Um, <laughs> so, <you know? laughs> so as a child, were you scared or did you just think this was a normal life? Did, like everyone had a life like this? Oh, I suppose, uh, no, I wasn't really scared. Um, it was just, it it was for me learning that there are different shades to the world. I mean, I, I wasn't the kind of kid who believed in Santa for very long. Um, and I, I was just, you know, slapped with reality. Um, and it was good. I mean, it armed me for things like loss and death and, um, you know, violent things that I would see that would probably... Um, you know, traumatize other people throughout my life. It, it made me pretty tough, I think. Um, and it also just grew this dark imagination. I mean, my friends were feeding their imagination at that time with, you know, the chronicles of Narnia and stuff like that. So they obviously grew up, you know, with quite light and bright imaginations. And I have quite a sick imagination. And it's just because, you know, I mean, my, my mum was crime obsessed and her entire library and it still is was all true crime um really? and so yeah yeah and so if I ever wanted anything to read I would go into her room and read her true crime books so I <laughs> like I was seven and eight and reading these you know these grisly tri these grisly crime true crimes and just loving it absolutely loving it you know um I, i've never been sort of that badly disturbed by anything i've seen or he or heard in, in in them uh you know and um and it just uh i've got a massive catalog that i've put together over the last you know 25 years of all this criminal information um so it's just very useful for me as a writer <laughs> so <laughs> you're obviously fascinated by it what about it is so fascinating about crime and the dark side of stuff i suppose it's 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 not just me you know people say oh why are you so fascinated by murder but Everyone is, you know, when there's a crime scene at the side of the road, people slow down. They want to see. It's natural to be fascinated by dark stuff, I think. I'm just really, really fascinated by it. Um, <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose I am always looking for an answer um, as to how people got to the stage that they're at. I mm. mean, some of the, um, you know, some of my... I hesitate to say favourite murders because that sounds like, <laughs> you know, I have no compassion for the, you know, the victims. But some of the murders that have most um, intrigued me that I've read about, I, I have been so fascinated when I've heard what has happened. How did that killer get to that stage? You know, what happened to Ted Bundy in his childhood mm. that made him you know, do what he did? Um, I, I'm just really interested in that. And I think it's, it's also a little bit primal as well, murder. Mm. It's, it's very close. You know, most people won't admit, oh, you know, I have been so angry in my life sometimes that I could kill someone or I've, I've wanted to kill someone. Most people don't say it, but I, I feel as though it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly I'm happy to say it. I have been angry enough, you know, um, at times um, that I could kill someone, but I <laughs> obviously haven't. Um, you know, so. so when you wrote the first book, Hades, did you write it knowing it was going to be a series or did you write it as a standalone and then you thought, oh, this would be a good idea for a series afterwards? Mm -mm. No, no. I, um, I wrote four novels before Hades and for some reason I, was, I shied away from full-on crime fiction. I, you know, I, I had crime elements in, you know, one was a fantasy and one was a paranormal and one was an action thriller. And, and I sort of went, 
I'm just going to bite the bullet and do crime. I don't know why I was resisting so much. Um, yeah, especially considering you're obsessed <laughs> with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I sort of, I, I don't think I believed very much in my procedural knowledge, but when I started doing it, it was all right. Um, uh, what I, so I'd, I'd been struggling to get any attention from publishers across those four novels I'd previously written. I mean, I'd, I had 200 rejection letters plus. Wow. You know, yeah. And I, I just, I stopped counting them after 200 because I thought this is really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, uh, so I, I, I knew some publishers, publishers knew me only because I'd cried on the phone to them, you know, when they rejected me and this sort of thing. And I, I was just, you know, I was just going at it. And so I, I didn't, believe at all that it would be published and so I didn't want to waste my time with a sequel but then again I did really like it and I wanted to submit it to publishers um, with you know the option for them to say hey I like this and it has potential for a series I Mm. think I'll take it you know so I, I left the end of it open in that way it could be satisfying enough to finish it but it that door is just open a little bit. Mm. And so it's um it, did you have have you thought of going back to those four other novels now or are you continuing on with this series? Oh no. No, I couldn't go back. Um I I have just finished um book 3 of the um the Bennett Archer series uh and that's going to be out this December. So I have to finish that off and write what I'm going to write this year. Um it's I'm in an interesting time because you know, uh, the Bennett Archer series is going to the US this week. It's in Hebrew. It's in Spanish. It's going to be out in Spanish, this sort of thing. So it's getting quite a lot of global attention. Mm. Um, so I don't know if people are going to be like, we need more of these. Um, <laughs> so I've written three, yeah. And that door is open a little bit at the end of three. But then for this year I thought, you know, I want to show people. I'm a new author. You know, I'm the new kid on the block. I want to show people that I have other characters and I have, you know, within crime because mm. um, that's my genre. Uh, but, you know, I want to show people that I have other settings and other crimes and other partnerships to explore and I'm really excited <laughs> about the next partnership. But if somebody comes along and says, no, you need to be doing this, I'll have to turn back around, you know. So you write crime thrillers and they are, they can be complicated because, you know, you have to keep the pacing up, you have to keep the suspense up, you have to keep the reader engaged. I mean, as you do with any book, obviously. But do mm. you plot out your books like so you know what's happening by the end, like when you, when you first start? Or do you start and then see what happens? Um, I... You know, I have degrees of knowing. I, I never sort of get a big piece of paper and map it all out as some writers do with little post-it notes and things and mm. highlighters. I can't do that because it just it ruins the mystery for me, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sort of like um, there was somebody, there was a writer that I, can't, I can never remember his name and he said that um, it's like you're driving somewhere at night, you know, and you can just see as far as the headlights and that's like that's as far as you need to see really mm. um, and you can get all the way there. So I sort of set out with a general idea of where I'm going um, and sometimes unexpected things happen but, you know, not you know, once I sort of go, oh, the killer is um, Jason Beck and this is why he kills people and they're, you know, uh, once I have all of the main players mm. on the board, I sort of know what they're going to do with each other. Mm. Um, when I when I wrote Hades, um, I got to the final scene and I didn't know who was going to come out of that alive um, as mm. I was writing it, you know, so it was very exciting to write Yeah, because um, I was just putting it down as it was coming up in my mind. Wow. Um, yeah, but the rest of it had been sort of mapped out, at least mentally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, I mean, I wonder what it's like living in your head because <laughs> <laughs> can you try yeah. your best anyway to describe what it's like thinking about crime and murders all the time. It can be quite awkward. It really can. <laughs> um, because sometimes, of, yeah, an unusual word. Awkward. Oh, I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little bit socially awkward uh, anyway. Um, people have to know me. I mean, I, I suppose people, uh, you know, my friends would say I have, you know, a sort of a black sense of humour. Um, you know, I'm always interested in the dark side of of of, of humour, but. 
I just I think I just think about stuff all the time. Um, you know, I, I always give the example of um, my partner Tim and I were at a park uh, near La Perouse, and these guys were flying those um, those really big uh, remote control helicopters and oh, yes. airplanes, and I was like all right, can you kill someone with that? You know, and I, 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 and I said, I was like, I'm never going to see these guys again. So I walked over and I was like, okay, so if you flew that and into someone's head, <laughs> you know, and they were telling me about all these injuries that their friends have had and this guy in the US had a helicopter one and he killed his son with it accidentally oh and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Like I, I just think it just my, my mind turns around to that. Um, all, all of the books that I read in my spare time are all sort of crime fiction or true crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the TV series I watch are all true crime or crime fiction, um, you know, so I'm just, it's just my lifestyle, I suppose. Wow, do you uh, ever just read or, or about, you know, fluffy clouds or no. YouTube <laughs> videos of kittens or something? No, I can't, I really can't stand it, you know. <laughs> and I, I said to um, Tim, uh, you know, we were just deciding what TV series to watch next, you know, and he said after the last one, um, you know, which was quite, uh, you know, grisly, he said, oh, I think I need a refresher of, you know, like comedy TV series. And I said, I just, I just, you know, are people going to die in it or not? I said, <laughs> if, if nobody's dead by the end of episode one, I'm kind of not that interested. <laughs> you know, I just think it's the peak. I've gone straight to the peak of the human existence, I think, which is is people killing each other. And yes. I just don't have any time for like all the stuff that goes on before that, all the romance and the, <laughs> I don't know, maybe so, I'm odd. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most challenging thing about writing a book like Hades or Eden, you know, where there's, there's it's, it is a little bit dark but also it's um, complex because there's a lot of things that need to make sense, they've got to need explanation mm-hmm. um, and obviously it needs to be written well as well and they are written well, they're, they're written fantastically. Well, oh, what What is the most challenging thing about writing a book like this? Um, I suppose it is, like you said, that uh, keeping the 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 plot tense and tight and thrilling. Um, You know, I wrote Hades with the general practice, I suppose, that at the end of every um, scene, because it jumps back and forth, and I thought at the end of every scene something needs to be clearly at stake, you know, so Mm. that, they're, you know, readers are ending a chapter and they're going, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, I can't wait to see what happens next, Mm. you know. Um, And if you're ending a chapter and, and it's sort of like, and then everything was fine for a while. You know, they're gonna they're gonna put the book down because they 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 don't really, in particular, you know, aren't stressed about what's going to happen next. It's about keeping people stressed. Mm. And uh, you know, so many readers have said to me, "Oh my god, I read this in ten hours. I just mm. I, I didn't even eat. I just uh, read it straight." You know, mm. and and so I suppose. I didn't realise how difficult it is to write like that until I came to Eden, you know, and I was ending ending parts and going, but what, you know, what is at stake here? Mm. Uh, it's it's also the twisty, turny kind of trying to not reveal who the killer is but hinting at it and not being too obvious. Um, I used to hate it when I was a teenager and I'd write, I'd write creative pieces and I'd give them to my friends and, you know, a couple of pages in, um, you know, they'd, they'd be reading it and they'd turn to me and go, oh, it's this guy, isn't it? And I'd go, damn it, <laughs> stop that, don't say that, you know, and what, what gave it away? And, uh, and I was too, too obvious. So it's a subtle mm. game, yeah. Wow. Now you yeah. mentioned um, that your dad was a parole officer at a Sydney jail and I understand he worked there for 30 years. So mm. you had a long time of hearing stories from, from, yeah. from your dad. I understand also that, um, you know, back then you, you had, they had their Christmas parties at the jail and you as a little kid were running around the jail. And Yeah, um, yeah. What, what, tell me more about that. Yeah, that's weird. I'm I'm certain <laughs> that they don't allow that anymore. But we're talking about 20 years ago, you know. Um, they would have, uh, you know, and I'm purposefully not saying which prison because sure. I think he he likes his privacy. Um, but uh, you know, uh, they would have yeah staff Christmas party, and um, and Mum loved it, you know, because she 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 loves prisons and criminals <laughs> and that sort of thing. And so we would rock up and, you know, they'd have shut the whole prison down, obviously. It was at night, all the prisoners were in their cells and we'd have 
you know, um, fruit cake and stuff that the inmates had prepared. And, oh you know, mum would be like, oh, you know, chew carefully, kids. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, trying to freak us out about it. But then uh, they'd open up the yard, the prison yard, and we could all run around out there. And they'd take us on a little tour. Um, I remember they took us on a tour of like the mental ward or the forensic ward or whatever it was and, uh, you know, we were knocking on the glass and and the inmates were on the other side like, hello. <laughs> um, so it was quite, uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they just don't do that anymore. Uh, they would I'm show sure. us the different, but I remember the work rooms and and that sort of thing and they'd, they'd lock us all in a cell, all the little kids and we'd be like, oh. You know, I'm a murderer. Um, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very weird. Um, so, uh, I, you know, uh, you could count um, on your hand the amount of people, you know, that you've ever met that have been inside a prison. You yes. Know? I just used to go there every year and um, it was great. It was and, fabulous. Yeah, to meet Santa. That, that's just nuts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so writing books like this, uh, you've told me about the most challenging, but what's the most fun what's the most enjoyable part of it I suppose going into everyone's minds um Mm. particular you know because I I write from the killer's perspective uh, or you know or third person and I I have a look at Frank's perspective and and this sort of thing so I can kind of live all these different lives um which is really interesting because when I pick up the killer I'm like, you know, uh, really rooting for myself. I'm like, got to get away, got to get away with it, you know. <laughs> and and I'm kind of on my own team, you know, on that side. And then I, I drop them and I pick up Frank and I go, got to catch him, got to catch him, you know. So it's like I'm playing this weird cat and mouse game in my mind. Yes. Um, and just it's it's the freedom of being able to explore what interests me uh, because – you know, I am writing characters that perhaps resemble, you know, people that I don't like and then I'm thinking, what am I going to do to you? Uh, well, you know, how am I going to depict you and what's going to end up happening to you and, you know, or people that I do like, I'm taking different aspects from, uh, you know, people that I admire and sort of weaving them into characters, um, mm. you know, stitching in somebody's way of talking and stitching in somebody else's hairstyle and, you know, it's it's just you build a little community of people who aren't real and you can get attached to them, mm. um, you know. I'm very attached to the whole crew and I'm just going to have to leave them for the next book but, um, you know, and then I've got a whole bunch of new people to meet. So mm. it's wonderful, yeah. I was actually going to ask you, you know, what kind of research would you have done for these books? But the reality is that you've been living and breathing yeah, the research yeah. for so long that did you have to do extra research? I did. I mean, I didn't know much about organ transplant, mm. you know, when I <laughs> when I started. Um, but it wasn't difficult to find people who would talk to me about that. Pe- once people hear that you're that you're writing a book, that's all they want to do. And people want to talk about themselves. I find, um, you mm. know, as much as they protest, people love talking about themselves. Um, every every now and then, like the research that I have to do is is weird stuff that I come up against. Um, for example, recently, I you know, in book three, I just had to find out what time Baywatch was on uh, <laughs> uh, in Australia, like in the mid-90s. And I just went to the Facebook page and I said, does anyone remember when, you know, and what channel and what time? And it was actually less than th- less than a minute I got somebody who was like, oh, yeah, Sunday, 7.30, Channel 7. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is better than Google. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've written the you've written it mainly from the point of view of Frank, who is Eden's uh, police partner, you know, mm-hmm. detective partner. Yeah. And um, and when I first started reading, and I thought, oh, how unusual, uh, you know, the, it's from the point of view of this guy. And obviously, I've met you before, so this guy's so nothing at all like you. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and and but it works really well. What did you have to do to get into the mind of a middle aged, you know, male? guy who doesn't really look after himself so well. Um, dude. Um, I suppose I've known a lot of guys who are like Frank. Um, you know, I was in the Navy uh, just for two years when I was a young lady and I've observed a lot of men 
who are sort of like that, kind of rough and tumble and just gripping their way through life, you know, one handle at a time. Um, and I've always gotten on with people who are like that and, and particularly men who are like that um, better than I do. It's just, you know, the, the female experience is a bit of a um, foreign landscape to me. I go to bars and I see, you know, five women all dressed up for a hen's night or something and they're drinking white wine and chattering away and this sort of stuff and I think, what are you talking about? How do you all know each other? What is going on over there? You know, I don't understand. I don't understand women um, very much. I understand myself, I guess, but you know what I mean? But I feel as though I understand men. Um, so it was just easier. It was easier. I mean, I've done female characters before and they always come off sort of super aggressive or super feminine and kind of catty and, uh, you know, and you'll find, you know, Eden in particular is very um, uh, aggressive and masculine and and this sort of thing. And she would never be at a hen's night chattering away. No, (laughs) yeah. So I'm not sure I could authentically do those girly girls, you know. Tell us about your path to publication for Haiti. So you had 200 rejections for the yeah. other novels before. Yeah. Then Haiti's come. Can you just sort of briefly tell us the key steps in getting Haiti's to publication? Um, I, I I just knocked on every door, every single door. Um, you know, uh, for 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 all of the novels. Uh, what I but would do you do, mean publishers or agents? Oh, or publishers. What? No, mm-hmm. I, I I sort of felt um as though it would be as hard to um impress an agent as it would be to impress a publisher, and it was. Um, you know, the few times that I tried it, so I just um. I thought oh, I'll be cheeky and I'll just go straight to the publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because I ended up getting an agent eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I just knocked on absolutely every door. And I think the key was eventually to give up on um, a book. If I had knocked on every single door and everybody had, say, had said no, I would put it in a drawer and write another one, you know. Uh, and I just was determined to keep writing novels every year until one of them hit gold, um, you know. So I didn't see four as as a, four novels as a failure or four novels. I just sort of saw it as four practice novels before mm. the real thing, yeah. So, so you knocked on every door. Hmm. And then, like, what happened? Oh, um, well, I uh, see. It's interesting because Hades was um, uh, actually almost published in the UK um, by an independent publisher, and he was the first person. He was actually in the Isle of Man, and he was the first person ever to have said yes to anything I'd ever written. Um, so I said, "Yeah, great. I'll publish the book with you." Mm-hmm. And then he had it for two years, and then he just was fiddling around with it. I don't know. Um, we were waiting on a cover to be created for six months and then he just said, look, I've run out of money, mm. you know. Oh <laughs> and goodness. so I, I had really given up and so I said to – I was writing a post-apocalyptic uh, alien book at the time just, yeah. for, just for fun yeah. and I said to my boss um, at the university where I was working, I said, you don't know any – um, people in publishing do you? And she said, oh, you should try um, Gabby Nea because um, she she um, helped her with her book. And then uh, I sent it to Gabby and, um, you know, she said, oh, I've seen a lot of crime around, you know, I've, I've had lots of experience in it, I'm kind of sick of it, it really had to blow my socks off and all this other discouraging stuff. <laughs> <laughs> she's a bit of a hard case, so she's really good. Um, and she said all that and I said, oh, all right, well, here's hoping, you know, and then three days later she called me and she was like, we need to meet each other, <laughs> you know. So it was great. It was so good and she's such a good friend to me now, mm. um, you know, so yeah. And um, Hades won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut in 2014, which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so when you started writing Eden, did you feel, you know, the pressure, oh, my God, can I do it again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. I was telling people it's like I I threw a, a dart at a dartboard blindfolded and hit you know, hit the bullseye and then people are saying, all right, now do it again with no extra tries. You've just got to 
you know, throw and do it again, you know. And it was it was very, very scary, um, mm. you know, and, and it's such a relief that it's done well and that people are loving it and it's getting good reviews and everything um, because, yeah, it was just terrifying. Um, I had uh, about a quarter of the time that I'd had on Hades. I mean, I wrote Hades over the space of about – a year and a half and then that that publisher and I fiddled around with it for two years, you know, and then they've said, um, okay, so write us another one and give it to us you know, by December, you know, so the, the time and the pressure was on. I was doing my PhD and, you know, just freaking out in general. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very stressful um, and, and being the new kid around, I, I feel as though I've just been absolutely blessed and I don't want to mess it up. Mm. Oh, you haven't messed it up. They're both fantastic books. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so what's your advice then? Some people are listening out there and they're, they're, they've, you know, they've had some rejection letters or they're scared to put their work out there or even just to approach publishers. What's your advice on what they should do? Um, I don't think, oh, you know, when I was one of those people, I would really hate it when, you know, published authors would say, just keep on trucking, you know, you'll get there. <laughs> Uh, I would hate it because I just think, you know what, you don't understand me. Um, but, it, you know, that there's a certain amount of that in there. Um, someone said, I don't know who it was, I, I just get quotes that I like and I don't care who said them. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody said, um, if you can be persuaded to not be a writer, then you should. Um, so, you know, people just couldn't persuade me that this pipe dream was never going to happen. I just had my heart set on it and I was mm. just going to do it, um, you know, and so I just wrote a book a year. And I, mm. I, I don't think I heard anyone saying put the book down if it's failed, uh, you know, but that is my advice. If you've written it and you've edited it and it's, it's, it's gone to every single door and every door has remained shut, put it down and do something else because I think people re-edit Mm. at that point and then they re-edit and then they re-edit and it's like getting a painting and and just keeping painting over and over and over it just gets big and cluggy and you know um the original thing is lost Mm. and you should just start fresh um you know and it's like uh it's like a relationship every book is like a relationship and and if it doesn't work out don't keep flogging the dead horse go and find (laughs) someone else you know (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, that's brilliant (laughs) advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Candice. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So what did you think, Candice Fox? Well, fantastic. And I I love the way that her mind works. It's kind of (laughs) she's really into it, isn't she? (laughs) Yeah, she's really into it. And she's so into it. And we know that uh, people are going to love this to find out a little bit more about how her mind works, that we've asked her to do a course with us. And we're really excited by it because we know a lot of people want to write crime. And this particular course is called Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Yes, and it goes through all of the steps of a murder from premeditation to the crime scene to, you know, what the police do to the prime suspect all the way until um, the court case and prison life. And uh, Candace talks about a lot of things, including her favourite serial killers in, in this course. It's an online course and if you're interested, check out murdercourse.com fantastic <laughs> so murdercourse.com but anyway let's move on to our um i have a app pick for the week because of course you do you yes. love a good app pick well i must i think we have mentioned these apps before but it was some time ago and i am genuinely in love with them this week mm. i've even been tweeting randomly to absolutely no one telling people how in love with these apps i am because last week i managed about almost 35,000 words and I do not think it would have been possible without these apps because of just the kind of organization and efficiency that they provide so it's a combination of two things number one we've spoken about Scrivener before and uh, I find that when I'm writing a long piece I have to use Scrivener I don't use Scrivener when I write my magazine articles at all I just use Word but when I'm writing something long um 
And certainly when I'm writing 35,000 words and certainly when there are various components, like I need uh, to, to, to refer to certain pieces of research or, or include some PDFs or that kind of thing, then Scrivener is just fantastic. Um, but I have been using it in conjunction with Dragon Dictate. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with Dragon Dictate. At the moment, it's love. Okay. And uh, for people who don't know, Dragon Dictate is a voice recognition software where you can just talk into your computer or into the microphone of your computer and it will transcribe what you say. It's not 100% accurate, but I am happy if it gets to 95% accurate. And it certainly has been 95% accurate uh, over the last week. I will Fantastic. Admit, yes, but... But I will admit, because I know some people hate it, um, that I have previously, uh, you know, say a couple of years ago I was using it, I certainly used it to write my book Power Stories and it was really effective at the time. It was about 95% accurate. But for reasons that I simply cannot explain, it then then became really, really dumb and stupid and it became like 40% accurate and it was spewing out the weirdest, weirdest, weirdest stuff when I was speaking. Oh. <laughs> yeah, really strange. And I struggled with it with, for ages, threw my hands in the air and was, a, you know, basically gave up. But I thought I would try it again. And what I did is I, I deleted all my profiles off it and I set up a new one and did the voice training so it would recognize my voice again in this exact environment. And now it works like a dream again. So I guess that's just a little tip for anyone who has found that their dragon – uh, dictate has gone a bit wonky, maybe delete all your profiles and set a new one up and you might have more success because it has saved me so much time over the last week. Love, love, love Scrivener and Dragon Dictate at the moment. <laughs> Look at you, you're a raving fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just true. 35,000 words don't come from nothing. <laughs> no, it's so true. They don't. They really don't come from nothing, do they? <laughs> <sighs> so we have a working writer's tip this week. And it's a question that uh, came up from one of our graduates, and I'm interested in your answer, Al. How do you politely cut someone off in an interview? So this is presumably when they're just rambling about just stuff that you are simply not interested in or not going to use. So this is particularly with magazine writing. Yes. And you're interviewing somebody. How do you politely cut someone off in an interview? I'm just trying to think about that because I remember when I first started out with um, with magazine writing and it was mostly when I was working at Clio and I was trying to churn out a lot of articles at, at a time but I I was talking to case studies a lot of the time and case studies can be very, very difficult to interview because keeping them on track can oh, yeah. be hard. Mm. Um, they're not used to being uh, mostly, they're kind of real people, you know, so they're not experts in any field and often experts in a field will get used to talking to journalists and will know what journalists want and will talk in short answers. Um Whereas case studies want to tell you the whole story, like from start to finish. It's a little bit like my husband talking about building a house, you know. He wants to tell you how the joists go together and what, you know, like it's every detail that you, all you really want to know is is how does the house come together. But yeah. anyway, um, that's a whole other story and I'm starting to sound like a case study myself. Um, so... I used to be very, very bad at it and I used to let people talk and talk and talk and I used to end up with so, so much um, transcription that was just useless. Um, So now I'm actually just really kind of to the point. I I ask the question when I get the answer I want, I say thanks very much and ask the next question. I actually just pretty much... what if they don't give you the answer you want? What if they're still rambling? Then I ask another question. Mm-hmm. I actually just cut them off and ask another question politely. Like I'll mm. say, oh, that sounds really interesting, but what about X? Yeah. And yeah. just try to kind of like move the river in a different direction. Like yes. you're trying to reflow the river basically with those kinds of people. Um, so that, yeah, I, I just find you, I just, you can't be backward in, in just basically interrupting and yeah. saying that's really, really interesting. Um, what about this? Move yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. True. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the way I work. I, I just had, I had spent too many years over transcribing to, to really put up with it anymore. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what about you? What do you do? You're probably much better at it than I am. No, no, I think that, um, well, obviously people do rave on and when I know that they're just rambling and that I'm not going to use any of it and it's really just wasting their breath and my time uh, when they're going in this direction, I basically, I do interrupt them and I say, look, I'm uh, sorry, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you, sorry to stop you there, but I actually can't use any of this. Can we just go back to the question, blah, 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 blah. 
And so I'll actually make it clear to them, I can't use any of this, so you're yeah. wasting your time. In a yeah, sense. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I find I often find, though, that uh, rewording the question, interrupting yes. to reword the question can be a way to actually refocus their minds. I mean, and the other thing you've got to remember too is that sometimes the tangent stuff can be the gold of the interview. Yes. So you have to kind of get used to, like some tangents I'm happy to let run a bit just to see where they go because if I if I kind of my ears prick up a little bit and I think oh that might be interesting because sometimes the the little tangent it may not be relevant to the interview that I'm doing right now mm. but it may give me an idea for another story so if I get that little ding I do have a bit of a listen and, and follow the tangent a little bit mm. um, but I I just think you've got to be not um, like, don't be shy to bring the interview back on track. Like, you're there yeah. to ask a series of questions. And as I said, sometimes the best way can be to go, so what you're saying is X and then refocus the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, good tips. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about what's happening with your book on Goodreads. I, I'd had a look at it the other day and it's fantastic. There's lots oh, of fantastic Oh, it's going so well. Things. I actually just wanted to say thank you so much to all the people who have taken the time to um, to drop me a rating or leave a review there. Um, it's it's just, it's going really well. I, you know, it's got 40 ratings, 17 reviews. I just, I really appreciate every single one of them because every time somebody rates or reviews a book in that sort of area, it, it does make a big difference to an author. Um, so, I just, yeah, really wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to do that. Um, and if you've read the book and you've got something to say, you want to drop a star rating or leave me a little comment or something like that, then please feel free. I would love to see them. So head on over there and leave Alison's book a review, The Mapmaker Chronicles. Yes. And if you, while you're in review mode, would be um, kind enough to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes, that would be awesome as well because that really helps us out. And for those book lovers out there, I thought I would point out one thing is that if you head on over to the Writers Centre website, so writerscentre.com.au slash news, you can sign up for a newsletter, but when you do sign up for a newsletter, uh, you go into the draw to win a $200 Booktopia voucher. So you've got to be in it to win it. $200? I know, right? Pretty good. Wow, that's wow. Am I allowed to? No, I'm already. <laughs> Head, I, I, I'm guessing I can't win that one, huh? I'm, I'm guessing. Um, so he, head on over, everyone. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, you could win a two hundred dollar Booktopia voucher. But that brings us to the end of our podcast uh, this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. We hope to bring you lots more um, exciting news, gossip, and another writer in residence next week. So until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.